Today on I'll Have You Know. You know, I guess my kind of wistful liberal arts brain also thinks that it's really important to get a, a very well-rounded education and try not to think of your education as purely a pre-job exercise. Think of it as kind of a set of diverse tools because you don't know what kind of problems you're going to be solving once you have a career. Brad Olson's path to public energy investing may not sound philosophical, but the Rice University class of 2006 alum says you might be surprised how much his undergraduate major shaped his path. The Northeasterner turned Texan talks Rice, his investment career, and where he sees the energy transition fitting into his business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I'll Have You Know. And today we're actually recording our first in-person podcast. We are here at the ION at Common Desk Coworking Space in the podcast room. And I'm pleased to introduce Brad Olson, Rice University class of 2006 alum. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Christine. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I want to go back because you, I think, are our first I'll have you know guest who is not a Rice business alum. You're a Rice alum, but definitely have that business experience. So take me back to what brought you to Rice. I know you're originally from the East Coast. Yeah. So I grew up outside of New York City. My my dad worked in in finance. He worked in in lending, uh, commercial lending. And I always kind of found my dad watching CNBC to, you know, be a drag as a kid. I was like, oh, you know, stock market stuff. It never seemed that cool. And, <laughs> and I, I, I was a philosophy and political science major at Rice. And uh, there was never any intent to get into finance, to, to get into business per se. I kind of thought that I'd follow the liberal arts path to, to law school. And one of my uh, older roommates who had been through the job hunt said, you know, you can either lock yourself into law school and pay a lot of money to learn how to be a lawyer, or you can become an investment banker and uh, get paid a lot to learn how to become an investment banker. And I thought that sounded a lot cooler than, than paying for three years of law school. So despite my best efforts as a liberal arts undergrad at Rice, I ended up as an energy investment banker here in Houston at UBS. And... Uh, Little did I know at the time that that kind of set the course for uh, what's been a career in energy and finance ever since. You majored in Slavic Slavic studies. That was part of a, yeah, a part of. Yeah, it was. It was actually they were phasing it out as a major. But since I studied abroad in Russia, it was kind of funny. The uh, the Russian program was kind of past its prime when when I got to when I got to Rice and you know I asked about studying abroad in St. Petersburg and they said we have this Cold War era scholarship that is collecting dust because nobody studies abroad in Russia and they kind of blew the dust off the scholarship form and said there's a few thousand bucks in there that'll help pay for your your trip to St. Petersburg and I thought that sounded like a you know like a great thing and so I spent a couple semesters in St. Petersburg in Russia. Unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, you know, that are in the news right now, Russia hasn't exactly been a, you know, it hasn't been a huge part of my business career. There hasn't been much to do uh, business wise in Russia for the last, you know, 10, 15 years uh, in energy as more and more development of oil and gas has become domestic here in the U.S. But uh, it was certainly a great part of my education. And I, I probably liken investing in energy to uh 
a Dostoevsky or Tolstoy novel more than I liken it to. <laughs> so, yeah, as, as weird as that sounds, you know, the Russian education does come in handy quite a bit when you're when you're an investor. Well, and I think sometimes we we might think things aren't related and there's more synergies than we may ever know because those are hard to measure exactly. Absolutely. I've always had a huge uh, belief that the the more things you learn about, the more you realize that there is kind of a web of knowledge concepts connect to other concepts and the more things you you read about and you learn about um certainly you know over the last few years as a as an energy investor there's been a lot of criticism of the way energy companies are governed and i think you know if you spent a few semesters learning about the soviet union or russian politics there's a lot of parallels between you know corporate governance and <laughs> russian <laughs> russian politics although i know that's not you know that's not a hugely uh, uh you know complimentary analogy but the reality is understanding why people uh, act the way they do comes down to their incentives and understanding a completely different culture and a completely different set of incentives like what you have in contemporary Russian society is, I think, really helpful for thinking about open-ended problems like investing or, or finance. So since you've graduated, Rice has added a business undergraduate degree. If that would have been there when you were there, do you think that's the path you would have taken? And what are your thoughts about the this addition to the undergraduate offerings? You know, I, I, I've kind of got two opinions about it. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, as an investor, I'm always trying to identify my own biases first. As a philosophy and political science major, there's always going to be, I'd say, a, a thought in my head that there's a lot of value to learning more liberal arts disciplines because you're going to spend the rest of your career potentially focusing on things with a very financial frame of mind. And so if you can learn in philosophical or political terms, maybe you can bring a, a different set of analyses or a different framework for decision making to something like finance. So I do think there is a benefit to learning about something different than what you end up practicing professionally. That being said, I do know that when I was at Rice, there was a frequent kind of gripe from from students that, hey, we're going into interview situations where we're competing against UT and A&M candidates who are armed to the teeth with these finance and, and business concepts. And, you know, the, the kind of joke once once I got hired in investment banking, people would kind of say around the office, like, why do we keep hiring rice people who don't know what a levered or unlevered beta is? <laughs> and, you know, that's like sounds really silly, but there's certainly a, a bigger if you don't have any business background, there is a, a, a steeper climb when you first get hired. And I only took an eight, one accounting class when I was at Rice. And although I was able to kind of smooth talk my way into an investment banking job, the question did come up frequently in interviews. If you want to do this for your job, why is there this very limited one accounting class that really, you know, an accounting and an economics class, is that really the only background you have related to crunching numbers or thinking about kind of economic or, or financial concepts. So I think it's good. I, I, you know, I guess my kind of wistful liberal arts brain also thinks that it's really important to get a, a very well-rounded education and try not to think of your education as purely a kind of pre-game or pre-job exercise, mm -hmm. but 
think of it as kind of a set of diverse tools because you don't know what kind of problems you're going to be solving once you have a career. That's great advice. I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, you know, your path that you've taken, uh, which has been in energy investing, but uh, working for others. And now you've evolved into working for yourself. Can you talk a little bit about that path? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, just for bring it back to my rice education for a second. Uh, you know, one of the jokes when you're a philosophy major that you're that your smarter engineer friends will throw at you is, well, good luck working in a philosophy store once you graduate. And, you know, the reality <laughs> is, you know, philosophy gets held out as a very impractical major quite a lot. But what it does do is it basically gives you tools for thinking about why the world works the way it does, which systems are viewed as more or less fair, which systems are more efficient at allocating resources. And a lot of the a lot of the questions that you end up asking either in economics or in finance were really preceded by kind of base fundamental philosophical questions. And, you know, for the philosophy nerds listening to the podcast, uh, Plato says that the best society would be a dictatorship run by a philosopher. And <laughs> as a philosophy major, that's probably the, the job you most want. But if there's no philosophical dictator jobs available, Investing really gives you the ability to say the world should work like this and I should allocate resources towards areas that are either underappreciated or areas uh, that, that could have great importance in the future. But right now it hasn't been identified yet as having great importance. And so in a world where that, you know, that that dictator job just slipped out of my my grip. And as I moved into finance, the realization of what am I doing? I'm a philosophy major who's an investment banker. As I moved into the investing side, that shifted and I started to realize, wait, you can't control the way society works, but investing is actually one of the very few jobs where having an opinion about the way the world should work, the way that you kind of develop those views in philosophy class, you actually do apply it. You just have to understand the financial concepts and the way that investments are structured so that you can take a big picture philosophical worldview and, and translate it into, um, you know, an investing outlook, which I think is a, as crazy as it sounds when I tell people that, you know, Russian studies and philosophy are great places to to learn about investing. People think I'm being a wise guy, but but I actually <laughs> do believe that. <laughs> so what made you want to go out on your own? The, the simplest way I think about it is you, you either become like your parents or you rebel against your parents. And in a lot of ways, I think I'm like my parents. But one of the things was, you know, my dad was always a very uh, he was always kind of a very steady, stable guy. He loved the idea of being a long tenured employee who kind of stuck it out and worked his way up uh, gradually over time. And I think, you know, again, it kind of goes back to the same philosophy major mentality of I have some ideas about how I think things should work. And I've found success being an employee and executing other people's vision. And but but I do believe that there could be some additional benefits that accrue to me if I am willing to take the risk of making no money for a little while, but eventually I can translate my vision of how a company should work who should get rewarded, those kind of things into an actual business. And just like any philosophical exercise, it sounds really clean and neat when you're starting out. 
And then, you know, six, 12 months later, you've got four young kids, a wife who's grumpy that you, you know, basically decided to give up a steady paying job and you're trying to get a company off the ground. And it goes from a kind of philosophical, idealistic exercise to much more of a how do I turn this into a business that has a chance to grow revenue over time and become something that can, you know, feed my family and support uh, my partner's families. And, and uh, you know, I think that was an itch I always wanted to scratch. And, you know, my wife and I have a good sense of humor about the fact that I am allergic to, to doing things the easy way. And starting a company is certainly a way to kind of you know, test your metal and test your sanity in some ways. But I think to see it start working out and become a, a larger and larger company over the last few years has given me a feeling of, of fulfillment, a fulfillment that I uh, that I probably wouldn't have been able to find as as an employee. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs who have graduated from Rice Business. How long have you, how long has it been since you started? So five years ago, my partner, uh, Mark Laskin and I uh, set out uh, on our own. And, you know, the the original, I think, you know, it had always been kind of a back pocket goal of, of mine to start my own business. But when you're in the comfort of kind of steady paycheck and all that good stuff, it's it's never a good time. And so in a weird way, we were lucky. We didn't feel lucky at the time, but we worked for an investment company run by a gentleman named Boone Pickens, who is, you know, kind of a larger than life figure in the oil and gas industry. And Boone was, you know, he was uh, up there in, in years at the time. He was 87 or 88. And he had basically decided to take his business in a strategic direction that Mark and I felt like, uh, kind of shortchanged our business or potentially cannibalized the line of business that we had been building for Boone Pickens over the last few years. And so in early 2017, it was kind of a look at each other in a, you know, dinky little office space in in Houston and say, well, you know, are we going to are we going to make the jump? Like it, we're kind of getting nudged. We've been offered, you know, to stay on, but clearly our business is no longer the priority for, you know, the BP organization. Maybe this is a chance to, to hang our own shingle. And we decided to make the jump. And, you know, it's uh, I, I always joke that, uh, you know, we've got four kids who are less than 36 months from oldest to youngest. And people would say, man, four kids within 36 months, like you guys must be so insane. And I would always say that, you know, there's nothing that those four kids have have done ever as stressful. It's a level of stress that is hard to describe. But, you know, as it's turned around, just the same way that as we see our kids grow up, it's so exciting. You see a business grow up and it's it's kind of a similar feeling of, you know, I remember when this business was literally just a box of business cards, my laptop, my partner's laptop and us sitting kind of back to back in a dorm room sized office, uh, you know, on the west side of town. Yeah, very, very uh, satisfying. And then, um, you know, you, you're here. And then any uh, long-term vision or goals that you'd want to share with us? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's funny. Like the, the vision thing, you know, to, to quote, I, I guess, George H.W. Bush, you know, when he was angry about being asked about his long-term vision, like this vision thing that people keep asking me about. Um, you know, I, I think the reality has been that we have a vision of this business being kind of a business that we can grow steadily over the next, you know, decade and 
really pour our heart and soul into it. But if I'm being completely honest, this is probably the reason that, you know, uh, I remember not being able to answer the 10 year vision question in the Morgan Stanley interview when I was at Rice. <laughs> and that's probably why they didn't give me the job, the job offer. But, you know, the reality is when you're fighting in this tooth and nail battle to get above break even, you kind of become fixated on, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other. I'm not going to get freaked out by the three to five to 10 year trajectory. If every day I can come into the office and make things a little bit better, if I can refine our presentation, if I can, you know, reach out to a couple people who haven't heard from us, if I can, you know, do something just to improve the way that we, we model companies and, and think about the markets, you know, I don't have to worry about making a profit or not making a profit today, but if every day we get a little bit better, at some point I'll be able to look back and say, wow, that's like 900 days in a row of getting a little bit better. And that's kind of how I think about our business right now, which is we've done the right things from a very kind of brick by brick basis. And we're now starting to see the rewards with the market kind of turning back a little bit to oil and gas and, and value investing generally. And so I try not to get too preoccupied by, you know, what the long-term future may bring and just, again, try to get a little bit better at what we do uh, every day. I think that's good advice because while long-term and you know, strategy and goals are important, if you start looking at the horizon too much, you could trip over what's right in front of you. To totally. And I think one of the things that entrepreneurs generally have a very keen grasp of or they're forced to come to grips with is this idea that, you create an entrepreneurial blob. You create this company that you think you know what it's going to do, but you really have no idea what opportunities will present themselves to you once you get running. Uh, Mark and I had a, had a very clear and distinct idea of what we thought the business was going to become back in 2017. We were going to recreate what we had done at BP Capital, where we had worked prior to that. And Things were kind of slow in the first year or two, and we got a call from a France-based investment firm that was looking for a, a small emerging manager to manage natural resources portfolios for a bunch of French and European insurance companies. And so there I was, you know, flying back from Atlanta, uh, you know, trying to go online and find like a... French high school level French course. So I can throw out a, a awkward uh, bonjour to the guys visiting our office. And, you know, now they've been one of our one of our best clients and one of our best relationships. And it was kind of one of those, you know, here we thought we'd be investing on behalf of people in Texas who are very energy focused and always interested in, in doing something related to energy. And then we found, you know, this kind of, uh, again, like out of nowhere, hey, because we were a company and because we were kind of open for business, these other opportunities that we would have never guessed come out of the woodwork at you. Brad, most of your investing has been at the at the midstream level. I'd like to ask you, there's, there's so much uh, discussion globally about climate change and the energy transition. Being positioned in that area, you know, what are your thoughts about where are we going and do you feel like it's a vulnerable place to be? You know, that's a it's a really good question. And it probably speaks for itself that when we started the firm five years ago in 2017, one of the first things I wanted to do, given the fact that my background was in investment research, was 
basically do a really deep research report on what the real world impacts will be of accelerating the transition to electric vehicles as well as solar and wind. And being a liberal arts guy, again, you know, keep talking about that. But understanding history is so important because the reality was, you know, 100, 120 years ago, some of the biggest concerns of people living in the cities of the late 1800s were horse overpopulation. You know, we have too many horses leaving all horse stuff all over the streets and spreading disease and and running people over, trampling them. And, you know, meanwhile, anyone who's read Moby Dick, you know, there's obviously a very kind of intense, violent uh, industry around uh, hunting whales for their oil. And so the idea that you could go to the middle of nowhere and get this liquid out of the ground without killing an animal uh, and you could somehow, you know, replace whale oil, you could replace horse and buggy with with a oil powered car at the time was viewed as this huge breakthrough for humanity, because anytime you know what your problems are today, you don't know what the problems associated with future technologies might be. So you say, all I know is this is going to save the whales and it's going to, you know, effectively move us away from this this really dirty and by the way you know horse stables took up about 20 or 30 percent of real estate in london new york and places where you know poor people were getting crowded out of living in cities where they worked because you know wealthy people needed their horses and so it was a it was this kind of great breakthrough that we're able to use oil and and i do see that parallel today with we know the drawbacks of fossil fuels uh, because fossil fuels have a 95% market share in our transportation and in our power generation. Maybe not a power generation, it's a bit lower, but you know, fossil fuels are the dominant technology for most of the kind of physical uh the physical manipulation of of our world, whether it's transporting things or or you know, agriculture depends on fossil fuels. And so it becomes very easy to say, hey, you know, when 1% of society moves to an electric vehicle, it's very easy to see the upside because you haven't seen the you haven't seen the mass production of electric vehicles, which will require a huge amount of really disruptive mining in some of the world's poorest countries. And what I'd say, because this could be a, a multi-hour answer, when I was a research analyst in oil and gas, I, again, as a liberal arts person, I could not pretend to have the geology or the petroleum engineering background to analyze in, investments in that way. But what I could do was say, everybody is drilling for oil thinking they're going to get $100 a barrel. But the reality is you've got to sell your oil to somebody and you've got to sell your oil byproducts to somebody. And what I found back in, call it 2011, when the shale boom was really heating up was that the chemical industries, the refining industries, you know, the, the utility industries that consume all of our oil and gas weren't adapting their supply chains to take on all this oil and gas. And so when I was at Tudor Pickering and Holt here in, here in Houston, I put out reports that at the time were viewed as, you know, maybe controversial or very anti-oil and gas because I said, 
oil and gas companies are drilling like crazy and they're not looking down the supply chain to realize that the rest of the world is not ready for this surge of new oil and gas. And it's going to create a crash in prices for oil and gas commodities. And, you know, of course, all the oil and gas companies that that followed our research said, you're, you know, you're just a doofus with an Excel spreadsheet. You don't know what you're talking about. And what I would say now is the world is talking about uh, moving from two or three percent electric vehicles to 50 or 100 percent electric vehicles in the next, depends on who you ask, but 20, 30, 50 years. When you're talking about expanding a market share from 2% to 50 or 100%, you're talking about every single industry that feeds into electric vehicles needs to increase in size by somewhere between 25 and 50 times in the next several decades. I can say fairly definitively that when it comes to mining things out of the ground, when it comes to uh, getting copper out of the ground, to creating more aluminum and steel to go into these you know, increasingly electrified technologies, there are no supply chains that have ever grown 50-fold in a decade or two in human history. And so right now, you know, it's very easy to say 99% of the world is dirty and it runs on oil and, and it looks bad and it's associated with all these really negative climate change outcomes. But what's going to happen, you know, say what you will about oil wells, you know, the footprint, physical footprint of an oil well is generally underground. When you see an oil well, you, you generally see a Christmas tree or a pump jack above ground. When you're talking about strip mining the minerals that you need to electrify things, you're talking about a footprint that is truly disruptive in the communities and the countries where those mines exist. And so the main message that we kind of offered to our investors was this idea that it's very easy to see the shiny Tesla output, but have you really looked and said, okay, I'm not going to need as much oil, but I'm going to need a hundred times more strip mining in Africa, or I'm going to need, you know, an electric grid that can tolerate the fact that when you get home, you know, you, if, if you follow the, the power markets, power outages in places like California generally happen in the evening. Sun goes down, your solar stops working, everyone comes home and charges their gadgets and turns on their TV and their microwave and gets ready for dinner. And that's when your power outages happen. Well, now we're talking about taking one of the biggest energy consumers in you know, our society, transportation and cars, we're talking about adding them to that surge of electricity demand that already is putting our grid uh, under extreme strain in the evenings and, and at night. And I think, you know, what, what I will say, and it's been a real education for me over the last few years, is I, I don't want this to come off the wrong way. But when I was doing oil and gas research, I said, you know, we're clearly producing too much oil, gas and, and associated liquids. I don't know when the price will crash. And predicting with any specificity when something will happen is known in investing as being a very unprofitable, <laughs> a very unprofitable enterprise. And so similarly, we are in a world where everywhere people are trying to develop new mines to accommodate all this electric vehicle growth, they are getting their permits rejected. They are finding communities that protest to these new mines being opened. And yet society is still dead set on moving to electric vehicles. 
And I don't know when the prices of these minerals skyrocket to the point where all new electrification and development becomes impossible. But in a world that steadfastly refuses to spend any money developing ugly, dirty industries like, you know, mining or oil and gas, but also demands more energy and more electrification at every turn, that is a clear multi-year trend that is unsustainable. And I won't make any money predicting when, you know, the rubber hits the road there. But I think one of the things we've spent a lot of time doing is rather than talk about, you know, climate disaster versus no climate disaster, let's talk about a wider range of trade-offs that involve like what what are the cheapest ways to manage uh, CO2 emissions? Maybe capturing new CO2 emissions, maybe sucking existing CO2 out of the atmosphere and allowing people to continue using some type of gasoline or diesel powered vehicles is actually a better outcome. Maybe switching coal powered plants in India or China to natural gas actually reduces CO2 by way more than wealthy people buying $100,000 Teslas. But when you say things like that, it excites a lot of emotions. And so it's really important to package it in a lot of research and a lot of numbers because, you know, the word climate, I don't get seized up with fear when I hear it, but I know that there is a climate component to this, but really it is representative of a highly uh, emotional debate that is very hard to wade into without, you know, accusations starting to fly. And, you know, I, I've certainly done a bunch of conferences because we've done so much research on the, the minerals required for electrification, where you kind of offer up some numbers. And I try to be very transparent about, you know, here's how many cars we see being on the road. Here's how much each car requires in terms of lithium, cobalt, nickel, etc. And you try to be numbers based and people will still accuse you of, you know, how much did Exxon pay you to be here? And so you have those kind of like, like, I don't think Exxon know, knows I exist, but I, I'm, I'm flattered that you think I'm, I'm that important. So, you know, great question. One that's hard to answer succinctly. But again, we've always kind of found that really deep dive research can maybe take the emotional content down a little bit and, and have a more rational discussion of we're going to need to use something. Which unpleasant decisions are we more comfortable or less comfortable making? So I have a question about midstream, mm -hmm. the, the definition of midstream and what goes into that bucket. Could that change, uh, you know, when we're talking about renewables and we know storage is an issue with, with that. So could you potentially see um, more things going into that midstream bucket like that? Or am I totally off base here? No, you're totally right, actually. I mean, the funny thing about the energy industry is because humanity generally and, and people get upset when I say this sometimes at like family gatherings and reunions and things like this. But, you know, the the real kind of algebra equation, because, you know, again, as a liberal arts major, I never really got up into those complicated calculus classes. But from an algebra perspective, there's a fairly linear relationship that as societies get richer on a per capita basis, they consume more energy. And when you look at, you know, a kind of very green German citizen versus an SUV driving U.S. citizen, there's not actually a, a, a massive gap between their carbon emissions. But if you look at somebody making less than $1,000 a year in a very poor country, their CO2 footprint is basically zero. And as 
quality of life improves, you know, the amount of CO2 is, is a fairly linear relationship. And so where we exist right now is the more we pivot to renewables, the more we pivot to electric vehicles, those things are being done with the intent of reducing oil and gas consumption. When we look at countries that have really pushed hard on solar and wind, they've generally seen flat oil and gas or even increasing oil and gas consumption in places like Germany because you need to have gas ready to go to back up when the sun goes down or wind stops blowing. And so what we're seeing today is we live in a world where regardless of political affiliation, because this was true during the Trump administration or the Biden administration or the Obama administration, it's very difficult to get anything major infrastructure built. And so in a world where you can't build anything new, you better make really good use of what you already have. And so when we see things like renewable diesel processed from animal fats into diesel that a truck can use with no modifications, that's being transported through traditional midstream assets. It's using existing pipelines, existing storage tanks. When we use corn ethanol, that's using midstream assets. When we talk about uh, carbon capture, you can't, uh, you know, the state of Iowa is right now in a, there's a fight brewing that carbon capture pipelines are having trouble getting permitted. The same groups that opposed oil and gas pipelines got really good at opposing stuff and going to meetings and permit permit hearings, and now they're blocking carbon capture pipelines. So if you want to capture carbon or if you want to transport hydrogen, that all has to go through the assets that 99% of which are probably already built today. So I think one of the conversations we have a lot, which you know naturally comes up, is what is the risk that in the next 50 years, your industry just doesn't exist anymore? And while I certainly get reading mainstream, you know, kind of Wall Street Journal, New York Times and coming to that conclusion, the reality that we're finding is, you know, the <laughs> the renewable industry is finding ways to utilize what's already in existence, because building anything new in the United States is just yeah, it's kind of a non-starter. So it's a great question. And the reality is, you know, as we move from oil to natural gas to carbon capture to hydrogen, all of those transitions continue to utilize existing midstream assets. So you've been on this entrepreneurial journey and um, we have, I know a lot of entrepreneurs that listen, a lot of entrepreneurs that have been on the podcast. Could you just talk about your best entrepreneurial advice um, in what you've learned so far to someone who is maybe, you know, considering starting a business that could be in, in any field? Yeah. So, you know, I think the, the best way I've heard it described is an entrepreneur has to have an incredible amount of persistence, but that has to be married with an extremely unflinching view of your actual chance of success. Because the reality is, it, it, as a human being, and I'm a huge believer in this, Sticking with anything is the only or one of the very few truly differentiating characteristics. The number of people who kind of get a business card, maybe get a website, maybe don't, and kind of say, I'm trying my own thing for three months, six months, and then say, man, this stinks. Uh, or probably they not that PG when they talk about it. But, you know, the the, the reality is, the ability to persevere is, is really important. And the number of times that I thought this is rationally and objectively 
not the optimal use of my prime years of my earning potential and my career, like that thought occurred in a very real way. And I think it does for a lot of entrepreneurs. You either become a rapid overnight success and let me know if that works out, you know, great. But the reality is I kind of came in with this multi-year thesis, which is very similar to the way that I, I kind of research investment ideas. And it was a, I think to be a successful long only investor, you need to be able to take complicated concepts and explain them to a generalist allocator. Somebody who doesn't do energy every day has to understand what you're saying and why there's value in what you're explaining. And after being a research analyst at, at TPH here in Houston, I felt like my ability to explain to a wide audience had really been sharpened. And because I had spent so many all-nighters as an investment banker kind of formatting my own presentations, I felt like a lot of the external presentation media, I, I could develop a lot of that stuff, you know, on my own or, or with my partners. And, you know, so I, I kind of went through this checklist and I said, I need to have at least a couple skills where I feel like I'm in the top 10%. And in a world where there's a lot of false modesty, but there's also a lot of real imposter syndrome that I think entrepreneurs deal with, I certainly have dealt with it where you say, I'm just not that special. I'm not that unique. You have to be able to go through and say, if I am in the top 10% of understanding energy markets and explaining it to people who might invest with us, then I owe it to myself to persevere for at least three or four years. And there are going to be days in month six and month 18 and month 36 where I'm going to say, this doesn't feel that great. And I have to remember that unless I was wrong about my original thesis, that there is a top 10 percentile business model buried somewhere in here, unless I'm giving up on that, which is a big deal to give up on your kind of core investment thesis, then I owe it to myself to give this idea a few years to kind of stretch its legs. And, you know, the story that hopefully brings a smile to some entrepreneurs face listening, you know, we joked that a lot of folks tell you as an entrepreneur three years in, that's when you hit your stride and you finally realize like, yes, this is what I've been trying to do. And it's finally coming together. And our third year coincided almost exactly with the start of COVID. And we kind of looked at each other like, well, guys, you know, like we gave it the three year test and COVID, you know, hitting us in the face like a two by four. And, you know, maybe maybe we were just the guys who drew the wrong wrong straw. And, you know, and one of my partners, um, you know, came up with this great analogy of, you know, in Forrest Gump, when Forrest Gump is out on his shrimp boat during that hurricane, it's like we're the dinkiest little boat and we are going down. Wait this hurricane is probably way more dangerous for the big boats that we compete against. And if we can just survive this hurricane, we will look really good as the small little engine that could through a really, really unique adverse circumstance in the form of COVID. And as we emerged from COVID, there was a certain amount of confidence, you know, amongst us in our office, just saying, we can look at anyone in the face and say, we got through COVID. You know, you can call us a small business. You can say you're not sure how long we'll be around, but we got through COVID. So if we if we didn't give up then, then you really do have to start asking, you know, these guys might be for real. They, they might actually be willing to kind of stick it through. And so I think COVID was a big proof point for us. And even though it felt awful going through it, it did kind of, you know, create that that bond and that 
that uh, durability test that I think a lot of uh, investors look for. And so, you know, in a, that that combination of a very clear eyed analysis of your strengths and weaknesses, but a, a, also a kind of weird I, my partner and I joke about this a lot, like the quality of being willing to just kind of trudge through two or three years with very little in the way of like super exciting over the top wins. Like, yeah, there were little bits of progress along that path. But there was no like giant jackpot at any point in the first few years that really kind of made us feel like geniuses for starting the business. And now in the last year or two, we've kind of started to hit our stride in a real way. And again, we kind of look at each other and say, like, there's clearly a little bit of a screw loose because we were given a lot of not so subtle hints by the market. Like the world's not looking for more energy investors right now. COVID's going to send oil prices negative. And the fact that we kind of uh, muscled through that, uh, I think we we take a lot of pride in that. And, you know, that was kind of our proof point as as entrepreneurs. So one last question. When you look back at your rice experience, can you sum it up in a, in a few sentences about just really how it got to you to where you are today? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, I'll try to keep beer golf out of uh, my answer. But, you know, the uh, <laughs> no, the, the reality is um, I think when I compare the skills I came out of rice with to really any um, any of my friends or any of my my peers, the quality of the education and, and the depth of thinking. Right. Everybody in a rice class that I attended, at least, was there with a re real passion to understand. And, you know, I talked to folks from different schools and, you know, and you hear the stories of like, oh, yeah, that was the class that people fell asleep in the back or that was a class where, you know, everyone was just kind of headphones in drumming on their desks. Nobody's listening to the professor. And almost every class I had at Rice was 12 to 15 people very invested in what they were discussing, really trying to give ideas a real honest test drive and, and really understand kind of the meat of the argument especially in the philosophy classes, but also in the political science and, and Russian classes I took. And so, you know, I, I think one of the things that's so great about Rice is I always felt looking around, you know, growing up in New Jersey, there's a huge kind of smart aleck culture and making fun of each other. And that's great, you know, but there at Rice, there was always an earnestness about figuring things out. And, and you know, I think just you get sharper as you're surrounded by people who are there taking their education very seriously as well. And so, you know, look, I, I think being at a school like Rice, again, 12 to 15 person classes, I know that's not everyone's experience. But for me, you know, I feel like there are still concepts from Rice that I talk about all the time. And I, I think about, you know, whether it's philosophy or, you know, Russian literature, these are things that I think about as a, you know, somebody who hasn't been in school in almost 20 years. And so there's a certain amount of like, they did something right at Rice. If I'm still thinking about my Friedrich Nietzsche uh, philosophy class, and it's been, you know, 20 years since I sat in that classroom. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I had a great experience. And, you know, even though it wasn't as business focused, there's clearly a, a rigor and a seriousness uh, throughout all the programs that I think benefits anyone who, who goes through it. Brad Olson, Rice University class of 2006. I'm so used to saying Rice business. But <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great enlightening conversation and we wish you continued success. Thanks a lot. It was great being here. This has been I'll Have You Know. Thanks for listening. 
You can find links and more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave us a comment while you're at it and let us know what you think. I'll Have You Know is a production of Rice Business and is sponsored by the Rice Business Alumni Board. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, David Drugliever, and Christine Dobbin.